0: Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services.
1: Hey, good morning, you guys. How are you doing? Good. Good. You mean cold, right? You're cold. That's that's how you're doing. Yeah, it was freezing this morning when I got up. It was, it was wild. Uh, I'm like on three, four layers just to just to uh, not be shivering this morning. So, hey, um, if you are joining us for the first time, you're you're right here at the end of a series. Um, but that's okay. I'll catch you up real quick. We're, we're um, in a series called Heart and Soul where we're kind of exploring some of the values of our church. And... Um, I was thinking about this story, I, my wife and I took a walk yesterday, and we were talking and I was, we were just kind of reminiscing about some things that have happened in the last few years, and I thought about this story, and I thought, you know what, I'm gonna share this today. It's not something I've talked about a lot, but um, in 2007, my wife Amy and I, we bought a condo in Aptos, which for us was a big deal, and um, you know, at the time we had two incomes, it was nothing really to write home about, but back then you could, you could, like anyone could buy a house. I don't know if you, if you were uh, in the housing market at the time and you remember this, but like anybody could just buy a house. It was called declared income loans. You could just go in and say, you know, they just, did, they just make it happen, you know? They just sign papers and anyone could buy a house. And everyone in our life system, you know, everybody that we listened to and respected as a younger married couple said, the only way to get ahead is to buy a house, is to buy real estate, you know? And we listened to that advice. Uh, We were perfectly happy renting, but then we we just got out there and we we bought this little condo in Aptos in 2007. So that was one year before the housing market in the world collapsed. And that's what happened. And uh, in 2008, um, a bunch of bad decisions by banks and lenders, including writing loans like the one that they wrote for us, caused the housing market to collapse. And uh, we also about six months after that, we uh, got pregnant, which was a surprise to us. Um, a wonderful surprise, but a surprise nonetheless. And so we went from incomes down to one. And the thing that I was doing at the time Uh, working for a company selling tile and countertops and things having to do with remodeling, nobody was interested in remodeling anymore because their house was completely underwater. So we went from incomes down to one very meager income. And then as the company that I was working for slowly started to uh, collapse inward on itself, uh, leaving me as the sole employee, I, one day I was looking at our accounts because I was you know the manager. I was the cleaning crew. I was everything. And uh, you know, I was looking at our accounts online, and I realized oh, I can't cash my paycheck this fr- this Friday. I'd get paid every Friday. So, and and this, I realized this Friday, like I can't. I would take it to the bank and I, you know, deposit it, and that's how we'd pay our bills. We were just barely making it. And I realized I can't. So so I made this deal with the owner. I said I'll I'll wait till Monday to cash it because we got to buy materials to sell to these customers and. Monday came and Tuesday, Wednesday, and the money wasn't there. Thursday was the same. And then Friday rolled around and I got another paycheck. And I couldn't cash that one either. And it just kept going like that. And pretty soon my dresser at home had a stack of paychecks that were not worth anything. And we stopped paying our mortgage. And I asked my parents for a little bit of help. That was really hard. That was a hard thing to do. And they helped us a little bit. Uh, But they could only do so much. And we went from, uh, my income was cut, not in half, but down to about a third. And then, and then it was just nothing. I just had paychecks that I couldn't cash. Anyway, uh, long story short, right about that time, uh, uh, and by the way, during this period of time, like I was really trying. Like I was calling, our loan was the Bank of America, and I was making calls. I was really trying to like figure something out. They were started, uh, I think uh, around that time, Obama had introduced these, um, Uh, this kind of loan forgiveness stuff that was in the works. I was calling Bank of America, and I remember reading this news story where this guy in Texas got into a Cessna plane and flew it into a Bank of America building uh, uh, like on a suicide run and tried to kill people. And before all of this happened, I would read a story like that just like you would and go, what a kook, that's crazy. But during this period of time, I read that story, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it, yeah. I can see that. I don't have a plane, but yeah, I can see it. You know. During this time, uh, we also lost our church community. Um, uh, After Katie was born, we were involved in a church that had changed significantly, and then eventually um, just kind of folded. And we didn't have anywhere to go. We were without a church for a year. And then I met uh, Danny and Jenny Bennett. They had an idea about planting a church, and I met with them and. Uh, eventually, we ended up in their living room, and eventually, we ended up starting this church, and that happened parallel to all this. But really, like I had a lot going on in my life, as you can see. I mean, Amy and I had a lot, and we had a. During this time, we also had another child come along. Uh, that is to say, we had a child, so we had two now. Um, we had a toddler and a baby in the middle of all of this, and finally, it came to the point where we lost our condo and we had to move. Uh, we didn't. We didn't have a. Um, we didn't get foreclosed on, but we did have to short sell. And I was pretty defeated. The only place we had to go was my, uh, my in-laws. So we had to move into my in-laws' house, and we packed up all our stuff, we got rid of a bunch of things. They had a little space in the downstairs of their house, and we moved in. And Danny, Danny and Jenny showed up to help us move. And I was embarrassed, you know, that this was happening, and I felt defeated as a man and a provider but they helped us move and in the process of doing things like carrying couches together and carrying dressers together he Danny just said, "You know, this is amazing. This place that you got. You got this place to land and you're going to be able to save up money and you're going to launch out of here." And he just poured into me for like 2 hours while helping me move and I'll never forget that. It really was a significant moment for us. It could have been one it was one of the worst moments of our of our marriage, but someone was there Speak into that moment, and uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. How, have you ever had a, a moment in your life like that, where it was it could have been the worst thing that happened to you, but out of that, God grew you. It, not only that, maybe maybe out of that, you changed your mind about something really important. That God used those circumstances, whether God instigated them or used them. I, if you ask me, which is which. It depends on what day of the week, I, I would, the way I would answer you. But, um, but God uses these things, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He meets us in those places. And often, how does he do it? Does, he, does a rainbow come down and big clouds open up and you know, a big booming voice from heaven? Pro- probably not. If that's happened to you, I want to hear that story. Please, find me after. I really want to hear that story. But more often than not, how does it happen? Through people, right? People are just there. Someone's there helping you move a couch, helping you change a tire, whatever it is, someone's there, and God works through those people. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So, I said that we we're in this series where we we're kind of unpacking our values. Today is the last one, and this is the value I want to put it up on the screen. We're a church that believes in discipling, we believe in discipling, and that's investing in and apprenticing others as a way of life. Um, yeah, we believe in this. And this, this belief comes from somewhere. It comes from this passage of Scripture. You've probably now heard it. If you've been here all six weeks before this, you've now heard it six times. So you're going to hear it a seventh right now. It's really important. This is Matthew chapter 28. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So here's what's happening. Jesus had walked with these people for three years, and then he had been murdered by the Romans, and died. And they buried him in the ground. But then he came back. He, he was resurrected, and he met with them, and he spoke with them, and he taught them for 40 days. And this is, this is kind of their last moment together. It says, Then Jesus came to them, and he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is this passage right here, probably more than anywhere else, is where our values kind of flow out of. But here's the thing. This word that appears in this passage of Scripture, he says, therefore, we go and make disciples, um, that word is, uh, it's one of those kind of words, isn't it? Like, what do we mean by discipleship? It's one of those kind of words where if you're, if you didn't grow up in and around church, this is a very strange word, right? And if you did grow up going to church, you probably have a lot of baggage attached to this word. And what I hope to do over just the next 10 minutes or so is just help us let go of any baggage and uh, let go of any weirdness surrounding this word. I mean, let's be honest. Like, if, I, if you met me for the first time, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm Chris Matley. And you said, what do you got going on? I said, well, I've got eight disciples. And, you know, next year, I'm hoping to go up to like nine or 10. You'd go... That's super weird. That's very strange sounding, right? Right? So there's baggage associated with this word. I'm hoping to, like, help us to just lay that aside for just a minute. Um, so we can relearn what this word means. So, And I want to do that by telling you two, I have two Jesus stories. Uh, one kind of a medium-sized one and one, one just really short one. And the first one is in, if you brought your Bibles, this is in John chapter 1, verse 35. Um, there, and by Jesus story, I mean a story about Jesus, him interacting with people. So this is John chapter 1, verse 35. This is where he's calling his his first disciples. He's assembling his uh, his crew. So starting verse 35, it says this. The next, day, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. So which John is this? Is this the John that's writing this gospel? No. Which John is this? John the Baptist right, so this is Jesus' cousin, all right and Jesus cousin John the Baptist went before Jesus Jesus ministry had not yet started, and John the Baptist was out there, and he he had followers, he had disciples that were following him around and learning from him and listening to his teaching and they, they began to live like him and um, he began to preach this message of repentance. And people were getting baptized. And they'd say, why, why are we getting baptized? He said, don't worry about it. I'll tell you later. And they just kept baptizing, right? He said, there's someone coming that's greater than me. And this is the moment when John sees him. He says, the next day, John was there with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, when he saw him, he said, look, look. I don't know how long these guys had been following him. I I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But some amount of time, enough to where they'd heard this message. When Jesus passed by and he saw him, he said, Look, look, there he is, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Of course they did. They'd been hearing about this person for some amount of time. So when, they, when John saw him, he said, look, guys, that's, that's the man right there. That's him. And these two disciples, they began to follow Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked a very reasonable question. What do you want? <laughs> what do you want? And they said, rabbi, which means teacher. They couldn't think of a better question, so they said, where are you staying tonight? Where are you camping? And he said, come, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying. This is what guys do, by the way, ladies, if, you, you know, if, you're, if you're like, what's happening here? Uh, guys, we, we ask each other dumb questions, and then we show each other our stuff. That's kind of, that's being a man. That's like, we ask dumb questions. Yeah, I don't know, where are you staying? Like, what are you into? You, know, you wanna come see my stuff? Yeah, there it is, there's your stuff, that's cool. There's your tools and your truck, awesome. <laughs> you ever see two guys talking over the bed of a truck like this? Like, just go to Home Depot, like right now. Not right now. I want you to hear the rest of this. But afterwards, if you go over there, you'll see two guys just standing by a truck, anyway, just asking dumb questions and then showing each other their stuff. That's what, that's what we do. Jesus knows how to play the game. He says, come and see. Come check out my stuff. And he says, uh, it says uh, so they, they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two. So these two people, it it doesn't immediately name the second one, but one of them is Andrew. This is Peter's brother. This is the Peter, okay? So Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, is one of the two who had heard John and what he had to say and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him. So we found the Messiah. We found him. I think it's hard for us as modern people to understand, like, the longing and the waiting that this people group was experiencing. The last, so we're we're reading in the Gospel of John, uh, before the Gospels, before Jesus, the last time God spoke to this group of people through a prophet was, was through Malachi, 400 years before that. No one was alive the last time that God, no one's, father's father's father was alive the last time God spoke to his people. They were waiting and longing. And when they finally see him, Andrew runs immediately and finds his brother Simon. We found him, Simon. We found the Messiah, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is how we translate the word Peter. You know, for many of us, Here, this is exactly like our own story. We were just minding our own business one day. And then someone brought us to this Jesus person. I was just a five-year-old minding my own business. And my mom brought me to Jesus. I was content. I had some Legos and some Star Wars action figures. I remember them. I was perfectly happy. I had my snacks my playtime, and my mom brought me to Jesus. And, and you see how Jesus introduces himself and then changes everything. He changes. He, he says, we're not going to call you Simon anymore. You now have a new name. And this is for us, many of us that have this same story where it, when we met Jesus, it wasn't just, let's, let's hang out, Jesus. It was He had something waiting for us, beyond just a calling. He had a new identity for us. I know that when I think back, I have a good imagination, and I can imagine my life without him. And when I think about that, and I think about who I am because of him, it's a radical difference. Can anyone else attest to that? The person you would be without Jesus and the person you are in him are two radically different people. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found his friend, Nathaniel, and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, Nazareth? Can anything, come, anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was just like a very very small like sheep herder town like in the northern part of Galilee. I mean this is like you know not 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 a well respected place. So anything good from come from uh, Galilee and Nathaniel says look at what Nathaniel's response is to that. Already these these learners are learning and they're they're following in their master's footsteps. He says come and see. Come and see Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael responded like any of us would have responded to someone saying, oh, here's this person, and I know all about you. He says, how do you know me? How do you presume to know anything about me? That's a fair question. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. There's a lot of debate by scholars about what this term means, I saw you under the fig tree. It could mean he just knew that he was sitting and praying under a fig tree. Um, also, there's, some people believe that there was a Hebrew idiom, like a f- turn of phrase, like, like I'm, a, I'm hungry enough to eat a horse. Nobody's gonna eat a horse, right? It's a turn of phrase. And to say that I was under the fig tree meant I was reading the scriptures, that that was, that was just a turn of phrase. Um, Another possibility is Jesus is referencing Micah chapter 4 that says, Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Meaning that these people were craving safety uh, in a place where they had none. And he saw this craving in Nathanael. Any way you shake it, whatever it was that he saw was so profound that here's, here's his response. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. As far as we know, this is the first person in this story to make this declaration. You are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. That you will see way better things than that. That was, that was a parlor trick. You're going to see things. It's going to blow your muffin top off. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So these are individuals experiencing real transformation, and we're reading about it right here, right? How, how do people experience real transformation? You know, Paul talks about this a little bit in Romans 12. You're probably familiar with this, this verse about where he encourages us not to conform to the pattern of the world. The pattern of the world is you stake out a claim in your beliefs, and then you just stay that way until you die. And that's that's the pattern of the world. I believe this, and no one's gonna change my mind. But he, but Paul says we should he encourages us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. By you know, sometimes you gotta um, at work this week we we I I called Comcast because I was like, hey, I have line one and line two and line two is not working. When people call I can't hear them. And the lady's like, well, let me reset the whole machine, you know, let me do it remotely. And anyway, they did all the things they normally do. And she's like, I'm gonna have to send a guy out. But if you you know, if it's your equipment, we're gonna charge you. And I was like, it's not my equipment, it's something of yours. And the guy comes out and he's like, Have you checked your cable? Yes, I've checked the cable. It's not the cable, you know, the whole thing. He goes through the whole thing and finally he goes, I think it's your phone. I said, Why would it be the phone? It's worked all this time. He goes, Have you unplugged it and plugged it back in? I was like, Don't. You know what? Don't do that. And he goes, unplugs and then plugs it back in, and it works just fine. That's, that's like, the best trick, in tech, like, the best technology trick, right? We all, have you tried unplugging it and plugging it back in? This is what Paul, I think, is talking about. Have you just tried unplugging for a second and then plugging the thing back in? Like, like, let's just try it. Just be open to the fact that you can have your mind changed about something important. This is the transformation he's talking about. So here's my question for us. What does it look like for us to be a, a church that is discipling for transformation. We, you know, we don't want to just gather people that look like us or talk like us. That's not the point. You know, when I was, my wife and I uh, just went on this trip to Israel a couple weeks ago. I showed some pictures of it last week. And one of the things you see there a lot is uh, traditional Hasidic Jews and the men wear these hilarious hats. They're, it's not hilarious to them. So you don't want to like, you know, just You don't want to smile or laugh, but these hats are like outrageous. Some of them, I mean, I kid you not, it looks like three animals died in the process of making these hats. And and sometimes you'll see four or five of these guys walking, and like each hat is bigger than the next one. It's. I try to take some discreet pictures, you know, but it's really you got to be cautious because you can offend people really easily. But I was like, oh, there's a crazy hat, and you know, whether it's like a flat brimmed brimmed thing or a little turn up or a little like maybe there's a tassel or a big tall thing. And I was asking someone, what's the deal with all the hats? Well, there's a tradition, right? And it goes back uh, hundreds, possibly thousands of years, where if you had a teacher, if you had a rabbi, and he wore a hat to signify that you followed him, you'd wear a similar hat. You'd go and have a hat made, so your hats all looked the same. I was like, that's so fun. I wish we had hat clubs here, you know? Like, that seems really fun. Sometimes I think, though, that we misunderstand this word discipling so much to the point where we think that it... What we're supposed to do is go out into the world and find people and tell them, hey, you need to talk like I do. You need to look like I do. You need to behave the way that I do. And then you can say that you're a Jesus follower. Does that sound familiar at all? I'm sure none of you are guilty of that, just like I'm not, of course. Other Christians, other places do these things. But this is, this is a problem, is, is our misunderstanding of this, this word discipling. So I thought maybe we could, um, as part of our exercise this morning, we could, we could look at what are some values of discipling the way that Jesus discipled. I think first we need to be invitational. It's about invitation. You see invitation written all over this Jesus story. Come and see. Come and see. Come and follow. Come and see, right? That's, that's invitation. Now, it's easy to, I grew up in, the, in church in the 80s and 90s. Some weird things happened in church in the 80s and 90s. First of all, everything was the devil. <laughs> you know, everything was the devil. And, and uh, second, there was just like anything good, let's do it 10 times because that's, that must be uh, better. Um, There's a lot of weird things. But one of the things that I think developed in the culture of church in the 80s and 90s was that discipling meant inviting people to church. Now, in no way am I saying that you shouldn't invite people to church totally do it. It's a great thing. Invite people. Good stuff happens here. You should totally invite people. But that by itself is not discipleship. And when we say invitation, if the only thing you ever invite people to is church, they're going to think of you as the people that only ever invite them to church. Invite people out to dinner. Invite people into your homes. Invite people to coffee. Invite yourself over to their house. That's what Jesus did. Remember when he met Zacchaeus? It's nice to meet you. I'm coming to your house today. It's not rude. It's being like Jesus. You won't hear that in any other church service today. Be invitational. Second, let's be relational. This naturally follows. You see the question that they were asking? Where are you staying? And Jesus said, come on. Let's come, come check out my campsite. I got some wood stacked. You know, come check it out. Come see what I'm eating. It's relational. To be relational, and in particular, when I think of myself, I'm, you know, I'm naturally an introverted person, so to be relational, I have, I have higher walls than maybe the next person, and I have to lower the walls a little bit, you know? Hey, come and see. Come and see the things that I'm thinking about. Come and, come and see the things that I got going. Come help me in my backyard with a little project, you know? Right? Invitational, relational, and we need to be adaptable. We need to be adaptable. The reality is our, our culture is not one monolithic thing. It's a, it's a fractured uh, mass of microcultures. You could go out into the world today, you could leave here today, and 15 people would be into 15 radically different things, right, but we need to be adaptable. We need to be able to meet people right where they're at look for the common ground. And lastly, we need to be Christ-centered. This might seem really, you go, oh, well, that's really obvious. Of course, discipleship should be Christ-centered. This should be obvious, but somehow it's not to us. Somehow we we make the things that we do in Christianity and Christian living, we make them about us. And they're not about us. Look at, look at the way that John discipled his friends. You know, we, what we do is we, if, if we see any measure of success in our life, we want to hold on to it. We want to double down on it. Look at John. He had some disciples. People were following him. He wore animal skins and ate crickets and honey. Like, and people followed him. It's amazing that anyone is like, yeah, let's see what that's all about, right? Um, they should have just, like, crossed the other side of the street. So he took, he took that success that he was having, a.k.a. people following him, and as soon as Jesus walked by, he said, go follow that guy. He just took his success and gave it away. How often do we do that? That is to be a Christ-centered discipler. So what stops us? What keeps us what are the things that are holding us back? I think oftentimes, if we're honest, we disqualify ourselves when we think about what it means to disciple people. Who first of all who should be discipling? who should be doing this work Jesus charged his his um his 11 friends on that mountain 2000 years ago he said go into the all world and and disciple so who who should be doing that today What's that Everyone yeah that's right you're a little timid about it but yes everyone here here's another uh bad idea that rose out of church in the 80s and the 90s that churches were places where special people did special things in special places and that the rest of us just had the privilege of coming. And that's all wrong. Who should be discipling? Everyone within the sound of my voice right now. This is for us. This is what we should be doing, is discipling. And I wonder sometimes if what stops us from discipling is this is this kind of preoccupation, this fascination we have with the result of the discipling. In other words, we want people's behaviors to conform to our morality. We look at the scriptures, we follow Jesus, and we go, it looks like this, okay? This is our best interpretation. And we look out in the world, and and we go, well, they should be doing those things too. And, And they're not. And so then we just don't do anything about it right because we think how could we ever change their behavior the reality is you can't we can't do anything about anyone's behavior and that's not our job to do anything about people's behavior our job is to say come and see i met someone that changed me from the inside out do you want to do you want to meet this same person right And if we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, we see this same thing. He doesn't stand up on a high pedestal and preach against the cultures of the world. He enters into it, and he walks and lives among them with no fear. You know, that, that phrase that he uses, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I wanted to um, tell you the Greek word there for disciple, because we, we, we're speaking an English word when we say disciple, but the Greek word is mathetai. It means learner. It, Everywhere that it appears 108 times in the New Testament, it's a noun. It's a, it's a description, like disciple, like like plumber, like architect, taxi driver, disciple. It's a noun. It's a noun. It's a description of a kind of a person, right? But here, the one place it's not a noun is in Matthew 28 when he says, "Therefore go make disciples of all nations." It's an action. It's a verb. It's mathetusite. It means go and along the way, be discipling all the nations. So in in this different way of looking at it, it's not a description of the kind of person that others need to become, but an action that only the kind of person that we are supposed to be can perform. So think of it this way. It's not about they out there should be disciples. It's we should be discipling. You catch that? It's different. The focus is not on us trying to make people to be more like us, but on obeying the commands of Jesus. I told you I had two Jesus stories. This, this is the second one. This is, this is how I want to wrap up. This is just a short one. It's only four verses, but it's a good one. This is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, If you put it together, the person that is writing this is the person in the story. He's writing about himself in the third person. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, the author. He says, this is me. (laughs) He's telling us his story. I was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus overheard it. He said, said, "I, I can answer that. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, go and learn what this means. Religious types, go and learn what this means. He's speaking to us now. Go and learn what this means. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy. Mercy does not reject. Mercy does not exclude. Mercy does not unfriend or decide who is in or who is out. Mercy is unafraid of being accused of being soft on sin. Because of the people that we hang out with. That's what he wants for us. So here's, this is what our response should look like, I think, to this, this value, is, is for us to ask this question real simply. Who do we know that's waiting to be invited to walk with you towards Jesus? Who do you know that's waiting? Who around you is going through a, a catalytic moment? Like So remember my story at the beginning, I was going through a catalytic moment. That was a moment for me. And someone entered into the story, pointed me back towards Jesus. Is there someone in your life system right now who's having one of those moments? You might be the person that God is tapping on the shoulder. Hey, I need to speak to that person. Are you available?
0: We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount Thanks again for tuning in.